Well, amen and good morning. And uh, that name is a wonderful name, isn't it? The name of Jesus. And that's really what we're here today to talk about and uh, give thought to and certainly to give worship to is the name of Jesus. I pray that folks never leave here talking about, you know, how great this is or how great that is or maybe how, how, how tough of a day we had in this area or that area. May we leave here talking about the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful name, a beautiful name. And I was just thinking because of that name, our soul can be well. Uh, you know, we all are born into this world with a soul that is unwell. Now, we got lots of problems and lots of issues. We are born in, in our sin and our trespasses, separated from God. But because of the work of Christ, because of the work of Christ, he makes all of those things well. He heals up our broken hearts and gives purpose and meaning to our soul. Take your Bible today, if you would, and join us in the book of Philippians, chapter number four, please, the fourth chapter in the book of Philippians. And we're going to begin reading in verse number one, and we'll read down through verse number eight. We've been in this book since the beginning of the year. We are now in the final chapter. We're in the home stretch here. Uh, Philippians chapter number four, and we'll begin reading in verse number one, and we'll read down through verse number eight. The Bible says there, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Eudeus and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. The title of the message comes from the final phrase of that eighth verse where the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, think on these things. Think on these things. You know, our thought life is is of supreme importance. I think sometimes we, we don't give a whole lot of thought to that. We're, we're okay with thinking thoughts that maybe, maybe we know are not the best. Maybe we're a little bit like the Jews in Christ's day. In, in Jesus' day, the, the, the Jews had sort of satisfied their consciences and, a, and, and appeased themselves to believe that they were keeping the law of God so long as they were not involved in any of the physical acts that the law forbade. Uh, Christ, Christ came to earth, and, 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 and early on in his ministry, in Matthew chapter number five, Jesus um, really changed or raised the standard dramatically. Christ taught that, 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 that killing or, or physical violence wasn't the only thing the law forbade. He, so here's sort of what was happening. The, the, people, the people were satisfied in their minds. They thought, well, I, I know I shouldn't think this about this person. I know I shouldn't harbor this hatred and this bitterness in my heart towards this individual. But as long as I don't act upon it, I'm all right. And so as a result, they, 
They carried within them, deep in their hearts and in their minds, thoughts of hatred and bitterness and animosity towards individuals. Yet it was okay because, well, I haven't acted upon it. I've never, I've never taken a weapon and, and, and tried to do physical. I would if I could, but I've never actually done that, so I'm all right. Jesus reminded his audience in Matthew 5, and he, these words still ring true to us today. He said in verse number 21, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Jesus said, listen, it's not enough to just just not commit physical acts of violence. I want you to know that as God, I'm able to, to discern the very thoughts of your mind and of your heart. And if you have anger and hatred towards your brother, towards your sister, towards someone that you know that you ought to have love in your heart towards, and, and that anger is there, I will judge that just as much as I'm going to judge the actual physical acts of violence. So he raised a standard. But he didn't stop there. A little bit later in that same text, we, we find his teaching on adultery. Those of, of Christ's day were, were satisfied so long as they, as they didn't cross the line that we might consider to be the physical act of adultery. As a result, this left the door wide open to, to lust and to covetousness, which Christ understood that if that's not kept in check, if that's not dealt with in the mind, will eventually lead to the physical act of adultery. Therefore, therefore, he taught that just because someone hasn't physically committed the sin of adultery doesn't necessarily mean that they are completely innocent. He said in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, he said, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. You might ask, well, what is Christ teaching here? I think it's pretty obvious what he's teaching here. here. Here's what he's teaching. How you think matters. Makes a difference. It's a big deal. It's significant. The most important voice that you hear isn't the voice of your spouse who you're married to. The most important voice that you hear is not the voice of your children who perhaps are speaking into your life and asking you and pleading with you for things. And the most important voice that you, that you hear, children, young people, is not the voice of your parents who perhaps are trying to impart some wisdom to you and trying to train you in the way that you ought to go. The most important voice that you hear is not even that voice of the preacher, nor is it the voice of a boss at work or the voice of some politician or some media outlet that you are listening to on a regular basis. No, no. The most important voice that you are listening to is your own voice. And that voice communicates primarily with you in your mind or in your thinking. Is that voice that is speaking to yourself regularly, is that voice overly critical of things? Whether things in somebody else's life or things in your own life? Is that voice constantly underwhelmed or unimpressed with things? Is that voice that is communicating to you regularly, is that voice never satisfied? Is that voice discontent? Is it covetous or is it anxious? Sometimes we tolerate this in our lives, but I want you to know something. It's a major problem. 
It's such a major problem that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the believers of the church at Philippi to instruct them on how they ought to allow this voice to speak into their lives. Talks about in this passage of scripture how it is that we ought to think. We all struggle, don't we, in our thought life? And Paul's writing details for us, ways that we could address this, how we ought to think. Number one, I want you to consider as we walk through this text together, we discover that Paul, first of all, thinks about the Philippian church. We find the thoughts that are going through his mind concerning this church that was at Philippi. We see that in verses one to three. I don't know about you, but it's a nice thing to know that someone is thinking about you. Perhaps that can manifest itself in a number of ways. Maybe you could go to your mailbox one day and you can receive a note or a card from someone that just communicates or conveys that they're thinking about you. Sometimes in today's day and age with the technology culture that we're living in, perhaps maybe your phone buzzes and you check your phone and you discover that you have a text message or a direct message or an email from someone. And there's, there, there's nothing that they wanna, they wanna do other than just tell you, hey, I want you to know I'm thinking about you and I'm praying for you. And how that warms our hearts. Maybe it's, maybe it's just a visit, someone dropping by the house, although we don't perhaps do that as much as maybe previous generations did. We tend to be a little bit careful about someone in the privacy of their own home, and, and we understand all of that. Uh, it could be a phone call, and you answer the phone, and what is it that you want to tell me? What do you want me to know? And, and it's just nothing. I don't have any agenda. I just wanted you to know I was thinking about you, and I want you to know I love you, and I appreciate you, and I'm praying for you. Boy, that's encouraging, isn't it? The Apostle Paul, the Bible indicates, was thinking about this church at Philippi. The presence of this letter is an indication that this church was on his mind. You know, one can say that they love the church. A lot of people do. Oh, yeah, I I, I love that church. But, you know, that love is, is really revealed by involvement and investment in the church and its mission here on this earth. Paul loved the church at Philippi, and it revealed itself when he was among them, when he was physically present. I mean, he he labored among them, and he taught them, and he was diligent to minister to them in their needs spiritually and and mentally and and otherwise. But, But I want you to understand that the apostle Paul also was thinking about them, and he was loving them, though though he was not physically present, even in his physical absence. He showed his love for them through his prayers. And certainly through this letter and its writing, and the, this letter's contents reveal exactly what it is that Paul was thinking about this specific church and the believers in Philippi. Number one, I want you to notice that he thought of them as dearly beloved. He thought of them as dearly beloved. In verse number one, he emphasizes, he says, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Now, that's, that's pretty impressive language there, isn't it? I mean, he's, he's sort of putting them up on a pedestal, isn't he? He's talking about how they're his joy and they're his crown, how they're his dearly beloved. And you think to yourself, well, I sure would like to be a part of a church like that. But don't lose sight of this. In the very next verse, he's going to begin to correct some things that were wrong in that church. Here's what I want you to know. No church is perfect. There's no such thing. In fact, Paul is is getting ready to to identify some of the problems in this fellowship. But that didn't change the way that he felt about them. It didn't change the way. Just in the same way as as, as in our own home and in uh, in our own families, sometimes we have problems, don't we, that we're working through. 
But it doesn't, doesn't change the way that we, that we think about them or that we feel about them. Just, just yesterday evening, we were out as a family. And um, uh, we, we had taken a walk somewhere, and we were on our way back to, to where we were going. And uh, as we were walking, my son was doing some things, and, and uh, I was okay with it until I saw in his path was a puddle of water. And I told him, I said, son, you can, you can hop up and down and be a goof like that if you want to, but don't do it in the water. You're chuckling because you know exactly what happened. I mean, it was as if I told him, son, see that water over there? Go jump in it with all of your might. And he did. I mean, right in front of me. I mean, I'm watching this whole thing go down. And I'm, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Dude, I just told you not to do that. You, you could not have misunderstood. The whole family had heard what I had said and they knew, they knew he was in serious trouble. Because it's, you know, it's one thing, it's one thing for a kid, you know, sometimes kids really don't, they, they do misunderstand the assignment, so to, so to speak, you know, they don't really understand what it is that they're supposed to do. But in this case, there was no doubt in anybody's mind. And I just, I'll just be real honest with you, I wanted to grab a hold of him and I wanted to wring his neck in Christian love. I was so mad at him. I was so frustrated. I'm like, am I, am I even here? Do my words mean anything to you at all? And I took him home. I was in a, it was in a public place, so I couldn't wring his neck in Christian love. But, but I got him home, and we, we dealt with some things. He and I, we had a heart-to-heart talk. It was just a talk. That's all it was. And, uh, and, and we moved on from it. Here, here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to know. I was so frustrated with him. But you know what? That, that boy is still my dearly beloved. He's still, he's still my son. He's still my crown and my joy. Oh, we have to work through some things from time to time. But that doesn't change the way that I feel about him. And the Apostle Paul is getting ready to work through some things with this church at Philippi. And, and I almost get the sense that if he could grab hold of Judas and Syntyche in Christian love and sort of squeeze the divisiveness out of them, he would have done so. But that doesn't change the way that he felt about them. He still cared about them deeply. Can I say that in this church, in any church, you're gonna, you're gonna run into issues and problems just like you run into issues and problems in your own home and just like you run into issues and problems in your workplace and in your neighborhood and why is it we, we don't think about bailing on our neighborhood when our neighbors give us trouble? Well, maybe we do. But we don't think about, I would hope you don't think about bailing on your wife just because you've entered into a little bit of a rough patch in which you're not seeing eye to eye and, and, and everything. And maybe there's a little bit of divisiveness that has entered into your home. Or, or you don't think about bailing on your children. They're still your dearly beloved. But why is it that so many Christians, they enter into a period in which, well, this person offended me or this person didn't say hi to me or this person didn't reach out to me. And, and I, or we, I don't see eye to eye with this person. Therefore, I'm just gonna go find somewhere else to worship. No, no, listen, we're a family here. We're dearly beloved. We work through problems and we work through issues. And Paul is thinking about this church and he's saying, listen, there are some issues that are at play and I'm writing to correct these issues and to strengthen some things. But I want you to know something. It doesn't change the way that I feel about you. I still love you deeply. You're my dearly beloved. Number two, we see not only did he think of them as dearly beloved, but he thought of them, secondly, as being divided. Look in verse number two, the Bible says, I beseech Eudeus and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. 
As we've already stated, this church was not without its flaws. Can I say this? Paul, Paul sort of calls some names here, doesn't he? People aren't real comfortable with that, are they? You know, it's one thing, it's one thing for me to stand in this congregation with several hundred people here this morning, and, and, and if I were to say, you know, we've been dealing with some issues here in the church, and if I were to name some of those names, some of you would be horrified that I would do such a thing. And yet, and yet, the Apostle Paul took a pen in hand, and he didn't just communicate this to the maybe 100 or 200 or however many believers there were in Philippi. No, no, he wrote these names down. The Holy Spirit, I should say, wrote these names down for the millions upon millions of people who would read this text. Now think about that for a moment. I don't have any plans to start naming names of people that are struggling in the church or having issues, that sort of thing. That's not, gonna, that's not our, 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 our primary job or responsibility but the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he names the names of the two ladies that were in this church that seemed to be at odds with one another. Can I say this? Listen, it's not wrong to identify problems. What is wrong is to identify problems without helping to solve them. Periodically, someone will come to me and they'll say, Pastor, you know, this needs to be addressed. You need to fix this. And their criticism is valid. But you know what they ought to do is when they come, they ought to say, listen, pastor, this needs to be addressed. And here's, here's how I think it could be addressed. I'd like, to, I'd like to volunteer. I'd like to sign up to be a help in this particular way so that we can strengthen this area. I think it's wrong just to simply be a criticizer or to be a source of criticism without, without looking for a way that you can be involved and, and a way that you could solve the problem. I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong to, uh, to contribute to the problem. I think it's wrong to resist efforts being made to solve the problem, but I do not believe it's wrong to identify the problem as Paul does here. In fact, he's getting ready to offer a solution. So it's in line with what we said first, that it, that it would be wrong to, to offer a, a criticism or to identify a problem without helping to solve the problem. Paul mentioned by name two women who were in the church that were at odds with one another. And here's what's interesting. These women previously had been involved in gospel work. Look in verse number three. He says, he says which labored with me in the gospel. He talks about those women which labored with me in the gospel. But now, now not only are they not involved in gospel work, but they're actually, they're actually contributing in this fellowship to a loss of gospel influence and gospel power due to their divisiveness and their, and their war with one another. Which led me to think, how quickly, how quickly we can go from useful in the Lord's work to useless in the Lord's work. It can happen in all of our lives. Well, we can go through seasons in which we're just such a, a, a blessing and, and such a help to the, to the ministry and to the gospel and, and we're carrying tracks and we're burdened about lost people and, and, and one, some little thing can get, can get us in, in, and can trouble us just a little bit and all of a sudden we go from being useful and being a blessing to the church and, and to the pastor and to the missionaries that God brings along our way through our giving and through our soul winning efforts and through our encouraging efforts and we can go from being so useful to being useless because we don't guard maybe some area in our lives. And that was the story here of Eudeus and Syntyche. Paul says, I can remember when they, were, when they weren't useful to me, when they were involved in the gospel work. But because of this little war, because of this little controversy, this little conflict that they're involved in, boy, now they're, now they're not of the same mind in the Lord and they need to be. Paul knew of this division, he was troubled by it. His heart, listen, his heart for them was to put aside their differences and unite around Christ. That's what he says here in verse number two. 
Here, here's what Paul understood. He understood that, that whatever they were, he, didn't, he named their names, but he didn't tell us what they were fighting about. But Paul knew this. Paul knew likely Eudeus was never gonna see things the way Syntyche saw things, and Syntyche was never gonna see things the way Eudeus saw things. So Paul doesn't come at it from that angle, is you need to, you know, you, you need to come together in this area. No, here, here's what he tell, tells them to do. He says, what you need to do is you need to unite around the Lord. See, you see, we can find commonality there. Some of, some of you, maybe you would look at something that I do or something that I allow in my own life or in the life of my family, and you would say, oh, we would never do that. And as a result, we could potentially, you know, be a conflict with one another. Here's what, here's, what, here's what Christ is, is saying. He's, he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm not asking you to, to, to unite over preferences, over little thoughts or feelings that we all, we all tend to harbor, we all tend to carry. No, he says, I'm asking you to unite, to be of the same mind in the Lord. That, that's the goal. That's what he's striving for. So, so he thought of them as dearly beloved. He thought of them as divided. But notice number three, he thought of them, he thought of this church as being able to overcome this division or this disunity. Now this is a powerful thought. In verse number three, he says this, and I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, uh, in other words, true helpers of mine who are engaged and involved in ministry effort. He said, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. You know what he's saying? He's saying, he's saying I, I need your help. So often, so often we sort of, we sort of see maybe conflict waging over here and we think to ourselves, well, that's not my problem. The deacons will take care of that. The pastor, he'll, I'm sure he'll deal with that. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go my own way, I'm gonna do my own thing and I'm not gonna get involved over there. And perhaps maybe for a lengthy period of time, that's what the church at Philippi had done. This war was raging between these two women and no one wanted to step in and no one wanted to get involved. And so finally, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter, says, I need to address this. Church family in Philippi, you know these women. They're at odds with one another. What have you done? How have you stepped in to help them, to counsel them, to, to plead with them, not to, not to be united over whatever conflict, but to be of the same mind in the Lord? You see, oftentimes our help, our help is to exaggerate the problem or to exacerbate the problem. We can do that by choosing sides when when two people are involved in conflict or two sides are at play, we can, we can exaggerate the problem by talking about it or in some other way. And can I tell you, this is not the help that Paul is after. He's looking for someone to step in and to help these women who are at odds with one another to settle these things and to find peace. Paul believed, listen, Paul believed this was not some, you know, far out there concept or idea. Like, yeah, this is like a wish upon a star type of a thing. No, no, Paul is confident that, that, that God has given, listen, God has given us who will, who will be willing vessels. He has given us the power of the Holy Spirit to step in and to help people who are struggling. Now notice there's, there's two responsibilities because all of us can think of times in which we've stepped in to help, help people that are at odds with one another. And by the time it was all said and done, we just wanted to beat our head against the wall because they just didn't get it, and they refused, they refused to humble themselves. Can I say that when there's two people at conflict, there is a responsibility, number one, of believers who are involved in that particular conflict. And I don't know that this is true, but it's possible that even in this church this morning, there's someone that is sitting here, and you're at odds with someone else who's sitting in this room this morning. Can I tell you what your responsibility is? 
Your responsibility is found in this very book. Go back with me to Philippians 2. Would you look in verses 2 and 3? In Philippians 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes these words. He says, fulfill ye my joy. Now understand, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So really, this is, this is fulfilling God's joy. This is fulfilling the Holy Spirit's joy. He says, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. So if you're here this morning, and you're at odds with someone and you have, you have been at war with someone, whether it's in this church or outside of this church, you know what your responsibility is? Your response, we talked about this several weeks ago in this, in this series, your responsibility is to lay down your arms. And your responsibility is to fulfill the joy of the Holy Spirit. And what is the joy of the Holy Spirit? That ye be, of, ye be like-minded, that ye be of one accord. You're saying, he's saying, quit fighting with each other. Quit, quit going to war with one another. Quit with the verbal jabs and, and quit with the, with the subtle little hints of, you know, I don't like this person and I, I, I don't care if they know that I don't like them. He, he says, he says get, get over some of those things. Quit acting like little children and start fulfilling God's joy and be like-minded. Don't do anything through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, humble yourself and esteem the other person better than you esteem yourself. That's your responsibility for those that are involved in conflict. But can I say this, number two, there is a responsibility of those who will be peacemakers. And so Eudeus and Syntyche, they're the ones that are involved in the conflict. So their responsibility is get over it. Humble yourself. Start thinking the way God would have you to think. But, but he writes in verse number three, some of you in the church need to, Help these two ladies that are odds with one another. You need to be a peacemaker. You need to step in and get involved. The Bible says in Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, Brethren, if a man or a woman be overtaken in a fall, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So listen, we're not to be, we're not to be spectators. We're to, get, we're, to, we're to roll up our sleeves in some respects. Maybe we're to, maybe we're to sort of get a little bit dirty, not, in a, not in, a, in a wrong way, but you understand, you know, just to, just to get among the people that are struggling, trying to pull them out of the dirt and try to pull them out of the mud that they've sunk into. We're to get involved in this effort. The Bible says, ye which are spiritual, restore such and one in the spirit of meekness. So the apostle Paul wrote to this church, and he said, I'm thinking of you. Here's what I think about you. You're my dearly beloved. I'm thinking about you. There's some division here, and it needs to be dealt with. I'm thinking about you. You have within you, church, you have the power, you have the ability through the Holy Spirit of God who dwells inside of you, you have the ability to help these ladies to overcome this division and this disunity. Now, get to the work that I've called you to. So Paul is thinking about this church, but notice, secondly, we discover that the word of God instructs us how to think. In verses four through nine, we discover that, that, that God, God has a will for every area of our life. Did you know that? Did you know that God has a will for your soul? 
God has a will for your soul. Let me, let me, share, let me share what God's will for your soul is. In, in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse number 9, the Bible says the Lord is not slack concerning his problem, promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. Not willing, get a hold of that, not willing that any should perish. Now listen, every last one of us, we were born into this world. We were born as eternal beings with an eternal soul that's going to live somewhere forever, but we were born separated from God. We were born into the devil's family. And if you, don't, if you don't do something in this life to address that issue, then you, listen, clear teaching of the Bible is you're gonna spend eternity in a place the Bible calls the lake of fire. That's a problem, that's an issue. And the Bible tells us that God has a will for your soul. And here's his will for your soul. He is not willing that it should perish. His will for your soul is that you, your soul would come to a place of repentance, that you acknowledge who you are as an individual, that you acknowledge your sin and that you repent of it and you understand what, what your sin led his son, our savior Jesus to. It led him to the cross where he suffered and he bled. The choir sang about it. Brother Doug sang about it a moment ago. The cross of Jesus Christ is, is, is the instrument that God used to pour out the wrath of God upon your sin and my sin. God has a will for your soul. He's not willing that you. Now listen, you understand as well as I do that the vast majority of people either will never hear this message because we have failed or they will hear this message and they will reject it. But that does not change, that does not change the will of our Father who is in heaven. And the will of God, the will of God for your soul is that you find a place of repentance that you be saved. Notice secondly, that God has a will not only for your soul, but he has a will for your body. This body that you possess, this, this, this body in its current form is not eternal. Now, you're going to get a resurrected body someday, and that body will be eternal. But at some point, this body is going to be put into a casket, and it's going to be lowered into the ground, and it's going to return to the dust from whence it came. But understand that God has a will for your body here on this earth. And here's that will, First Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. So God's will for your soul is that you be born again. God's will for for your body is that you keep it pure, that you abstain from fornication, from adultery, or we might say immorality or sexual sin. That's God's will for every one of us, for our bodies, that we possess this vessel, this, this body that you're looking at, that we possess it in a way that is pleasing and honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his will for your body. So understand, listen, God, God cares about every element of your being. He's got, he's got a will for your soul. He's got a will for your body. But we discover in this text that God also has a will for our mind. In Philippians 4 and verse number 8, we discover what that will is. He says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. So God says, I have a, I have a will for your mind. I, I, I have a desire of things that I want you to think on and to think about. Notice Paul reveals this will. How, how does God's word instruct us to think? What is, what, what is it that he would have you to think on? Notice number one, he would have you to think positively. Think positively. In verses four and five, I must hurry, but we discover, we discover two, two elements to this thinking positively. Number one, if you're gonna think positively, you must, first of all, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, I have to tell you, that this world is a mess. There's no doubt about it. I heard this morning something tragic. On the radio, I heard a little girl, I don't know how old she was, 
About 6.30 last night over here, West 50th and Clark area, hit and run, she was struck and killed. Little girl, can you imagine that? You know, the little daughter, precious little, dearly beloved, as we talked about a moment ago. I don't know what, I don't know all the circumstances. But think about that. That broke my heart this morning. Trying to, trying to, you know, serve the Lord and trying to, you know, keep a, maintain a positive spirit. And I hear news like that. Mass shootings, war, violence everywhere. People doing perverted things with one another, sometimes with even little children. This world's a mess. I, I look at the financial picture and that sometimes looks bleak. I talked about last week that I'm getting older, therefore my body's failing me. Friends, friends sometimes disappoint me. I have to tell you, even sometimes family can be somewhat unreliable. The one, maybe the one thing that I thought I needed to provide me with true joy and happiness has, has now grown old and no longer provides the spark that it once did. Maybe it's that new car that I just had to have or that new outfit that I just, well, if I could just have that and wear that or carry that purse or wear that, those shoes or, or, or maybe it's that house. If I could just live in that neighborhood, oh, I'd be so much happier. And, and then we get into that place and we realize there's issues in this neighborhood just like there were in my last neighborhood. And this house, even though it's newer, it's falling apart too because everything's falling apart. Can I tell you, there's one thing, there's one thing that will never disappoint and will never fail. It's not a thing, it's a person. His name is Jesus. Jesus will never let you down. Therefore, therefore, listen, he's, he's not saying rejoice in your circumstances because there may be moments in which we can't rejoice in our circumstances. He's not saying rejoice in your successes and your achievements because he acknowledges there may be times in which I don't have any successes and I don't have any achievements. What he's saying, he's saying this, rejoice in the Lord because you can always find something in the Lord to, to rejoice about. He never fails, he never disappoints. I love what Habakkuk wrote in Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19. Listen to what he says. He says, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. That's a bleak picture right there. Most of us aren't farmers, but we sort of get the idea of what's being said there. B bad news on the farm there of Habakkuk. Look what he says, though. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Let's just bring it down to 2022. Although, although you lost your job last week. Although you had to take a pay cut. Although you got bad news at the doctor. Although you turned on the television or you turned on the radio like I did this morning and you heard bad news on the radio. Although the economy is tanking and although maybe your favorite politician didn't win election or re-election. Hey, guess what? It doesn't really matter. I am still going to rejoice in the Lord. That's what he's saying. Think positively. But notice, secondly, he says not only rejoice in the Lord, but he says, number two, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Now, there have been two primary interpretations of this passage, and I just want you to know good news, both of them are positive. Some have understood this to mean the Lord is coming soon. So rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. He's coming soon. That's a positive thought. Oh, it's only a positive thought for those of us that know Christ as our Savior. For those of us maybe that have family or friends or coworkers that don't know Christ, uh, that's not so positive of a thought. The Lord is at hand. He's coming soon. 
But certainly to Paul's audience there at the church at Philippi, that was an encouraging thought. But notice, notice I believe there's a second thought that, that is contained here. And I believe maybe this is the primary thought that the apostle Paul was hinting at. And here it is, here it is. Here's a second interpretation. Not just the Lord is coming soon, but, but get this, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Why is that encouraging? Why is that positive? Here's why that's positive. I can do everything that he's called me to do because he is near. In fact, he dwells inside of me through the person of the Holy Spirit. He is near. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, therefore, whatever it is he's asking me to do, I can do it, not in my own strength, my own power, but in the strength of the one who is near to me. Sort of pushes me across the finish line. Sort of gives me the power and strength that I need. Therefore, therefore, think, think positively. Number two, think prayerfully. Verses six and seven. We see two things I must hurry. Let me just share them with you very quickly and we'll be done. Think prayerfully. Number one, understand this. Prayer is greater than your anxiety. Therefore, therefore, when you enter into anxious moments, and we all do, the first response ought to be, well, I'm gonna give this thing to the Lord in prayer. I'm gonna allow, I'm gonna allow the Lord to take this burden from me. In verse number six, he says, be careful for nothing. That, means, that literally means to be full of care about nothing. To be full of worry, to be full of anxiety about nothing. What should we do then? We should, we should take those cares, those worries, those anxieties, and we should bring them to the Lord in prayer. Things like, things like health, relationships, career, finances, education, looming deadlines, taxes, economy, media, all of these things produce anxiety in our lives. What do we do with these things? And some allow their anxieties to overwhelm them, to lead them to a place of depression and difficulty. They'll be full of care and they'll be eventually crushed under this weight. When anxiety, listen, when anxiety threatens us, we have something greater, something more powerful, a a capable weapon to defeat our worries and our fears. And that weapon and that tool is prayer and it is greater than our anxieties. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 55, 17, evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. He wrote in that same chapter, verse number 22, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Psalm 62, 80 wrote, trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him and God is a refuge for us. I especially love Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me. And I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Second thing I want to call to your attention is found in verse number seven, and that is this, that if you'll pray, it's greater than anxiety, but if you'll pray, God will give you peace. Notice that the prerequisite for peace, the peace of God which passes all understanding, is found in the preceding verse, and that is when we bring everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, and we let our requests be made known unto God. Is it possible that you don't have peace about your life and about your situation because you've not really prayed about it like you ought to? Now, sometimes, sometimes God doesn't give us peace right away. And in that moment in which we don't have peace right away, we're, we're best not to do anything. Just wait on the Lord. But it may, be, it may be that you don't have a peace about a matter because you've not really sought the Lord's will about it. You've not really sought the Spirit of God related to what it is that he would have you to do. If you're lacking God's peace, perhaps maybe you've left out prayer. I think the teaching is this, pray about everything always. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6, 18 says, praying always with all prayer and supplication, the spirit which is the word of God. So there is the thought of you thinking positively. God would have you to think prayerfully. And lastly and finally this morning, he would have you to think purely. Verse number eight, 
Things that are identified here, all of them are pure. They're the highest moral character or order. True and honest, as he identifies first, they're greater than lies. Just is greater than unjust. Pure is greater than impure. Lovely is greater than unlovely. Good report is greater than bad news or bad report. God is specifically telling you that these are the things he would have you to think on. Can I say this is intentional and forbids impure thoughts and thinking. It's not a suggestion. This is a stated order or command in God's word. He says, think on these things. He doesn't say if you get around to it or if you want to. No, no. He says, these are the things that I want you to think on. No doubt many of our problems and issues could be done away with if we would just think biblically. One of the greatest battles that any of us face is the battle in our minds. And listen, you can win this battle unequivocally you can win this battle according to this text. Here's what I'm I'm encouraging our church family to do today. Engage. Engage. Today and every day in right and proper thinking to think positively. I'm gonna rejoice in the Lord today. He's near. Think prayerfully. Oh, I know. This worry, this anxiety drive me crazy if I think about it too much. So I'm not gonna think about that. I'm gonna bring it to the Lord and I'm gonna give it to him. Think purely. Is it true? Is it honest? Is it of good report? Is there any virtue? Is there any praise? Think on these things. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment this morning.